Good morning, community of faith. I'm so glad you're here on this, what's the first of the two holiday weekends as we're out for Thanksgiving, but uh, we're going to give thanks to God for all he's done. I'm thankful for you. I'm just so proud of you because you're making a difference all around the globe. You're making a difference right here in Houston. You're going to hear some of those stories this morning. But I just wanted to tell you that I'm proud of you. One of the things that happens as we go around the globe and uh, make impact is we're friends with people, but we walk in business and in partnership and friendship with them is their lives begin to change because they always ask us. I remember in Burundi, the Batwa people, as we were working with them, say, why are you here? Why do you come? We're in this series, I Am. I Am Community of Faith, but we this day are going to talk about I am rescued. We have Kelly Nikondeha with us. Kelly, you want to come up and share a little bit? Yeah, you can do that. Um, she's going to share with us just a little bit about what God's doing uh, around the globe and in Burundi especially. But before she speaks to us, take a look at this video. Born in 1989, Shabani is the oldest of seven siblings in his family. He was born upcountry and started his life like any kid, which in Burundi includes school and soccer. But then he got sick. At 14, his body began to betray him, his legs growing weaker and weaker over the next two years. By his 16th birthday, he could not even stand on his own two feet. The doctors said there was no fix for his legs. This is when his real nightmare began. The hospital and his family turned him out into the streets. You are a beggar now, they said. On the streets, he'd live among the poorest of the poor. But he never wanted to be a beggar or a burden. He prayed to God, asking only to die soon. He cried himself to sleep every night. During the long days, he scanned the streets for a way out. He looked for a business he could do with his physical limitations. And he decided that selling telephone airtime was his chance. He started saving the money from his begging until he had $25. He bought his small batch of airtime cards and he began to sell instead of begging. In 2012, a friend introduced Shabani to Claude, who uses a lot of airtime. That was the year we opened Kazoza Bank. And Claude immediately thought of Shabani as a strong candidate for a loan. Shabani got his first loan with Kazoza and finally had real capital to invest in growing his business. He was able to buy airtime in bulk, sell more, and hire others into his team. He has had a couple of subsequent loans from Kazoza, continuing to grow his business to support himself, employ others, and even invest in a piece of land for his future home. He moves thousands of dollars in airtime every month. From $25 initial investment, he now makes 
an income of $800 per month and operates with $10,000 capital through Kazoza Bank. God answered Shabani's prayers in unexpected ways, not with a quick death, but a new life. Shabani said his biggest fear was living poor and being a burden to others. He thought that the loss of his legs meant the loss of a good future. But God rescued him from poverty and his partnership with Kazoza played a part in God's plan. No longer a beggar, he is a business owner. No longer a burden, he is a blessing. He now helps others, mentoring young men on the streets, giving loans to others and offering encouragement to the down and out. He is full of joy and shares that with everyone who comes his way. When God rescues us, we can't help but become a redemptive force in our community. Shabani was rescued from poverty and now he rescues others. Well, good morning, community of faith. It's good to yeah. be here with you. <laughs> you know, there are actually 60% of Burundians who live on less than $1.90 a day. So we have a huge rescue effort um, to work with folks like Shabani and see them step into the economy and experience God's rescue in a very tangible way. And so that's one of the things that you partner uh, to do in Burundi, and we are so grateful. But there is another huge rescue operation underway in Burundi, and that is against malnourishment. So Burundi also suffers about 56% of the population suffers with inadequate food. And what that means is we have children whose brains don't grow to full capacity and their bodies don't reach their full height. And we have women who can't have healthy birth and, and feed their babies because they just don't have enough nutrition. And so one of the things that we started a, a few years ago uh, is to feed children and mothers and lactating women and so we have a, a school and we up in Bubanza where some of y'all have been with us before. And we feed over 1,200 children breakfast and lunch every day, along with any pregnant mamas or lactating women, right? And we started to feed them fortified porridge, which is like a really good cream of wheat full of a multivitamin mix. So they're getting all the nutrition that they need for a day. And what we noticed after several months is that the children started to grow healthier. Their eyesight got sharper in the classroom. After about a year, we noticed that they were doubling in weight. And women were having more healthy births. And children were surviving to see their second birthday and their third birthday. And we realized that God was rescuing this community from malnourishment. And so Mark and Laura were with us uh, one summer. I remember all of us were in the car going up to Bubanza, and we started dreaming together about what would it mean to take that rescue that we have witnessed in Bubanza and expand it. And so we started dreaming together about manufacturing fortified porridge 
to help an entire nation. It's a huge dream, but God wants to rescue more than just one community, doesn't he? And so this year, it has been a huge project to start a forage factory. We now have a high capacity uh, factory that can produce tons per day. And we are now getting it out onto the market, getting it out into vulnerable communities, because our dream is to partner with God in rescuing millions of children and mothers from that kind of backbreaking, future-breaking malnourishment. And so you are part of that. You have been feeding children, you have been feeding women, and now you are part of God's rescue operation to feed an entire nation. And so we are so grateful that you are our partners, and we can't wait to receive some of you this summer maybe, so you can see what God is doing in Burundi. Thank you, Kelly. We love Claude and Kelly so much. They are our staff on the ground there. They're 100% uh, paid by you, Community of Faith, and uh, everything that happens in Burundi is done by you. We've literally put in uh, millions of dollars into the bank that now is, uh, has like 30,000 clients, is making a difference across that whole country. Uh, also, the, the porridge factory, several hundred thousand dollars, you did that, and I am so proud of you for that. When they ask us, why did you do that? We have an answer, because we've been rescued. I want you to pull out your sermon notes with me because we're going to look at this. We're, we're talking about I am rescued today as we get into this what is community of faith and who are we and I think it's really important that we understand this because as we realize how we're rescued that's when we begin to be a part of God's rescue plan around the globe. Now it's funny because America today when we think about going to heaven, when we think about religion, when we think about all kinds, of, we think of there's good people and bad people. You know, you're kind of on this scale. If your good outweighs your bad, then maybe you're going to make it. Now, most of us would say that we're pretty good people. In fact, I've rarely talked to a person only once or twice in my whole lifetime that said I'm a bad person. Most would say, well, I'm pretty good, and they would name things. That, did you know that God doesn't see it that way? God doesn't see good people and bad people. He sees it totally different he sees live people and dead people in fact God sees dead people walking the walking dead has brought the zombie genre back to life and but I want you just to imagine that you're in the walking dead and and this zombie and you're just gonna like buddy up to this zombie and say if you'll be a good zombie I'm gonna make you my best friend and Please don't suck my brains out. Let's be good buddies and we're going to walk together. You're a pretty good zombie. What's the zombie going to, he's going to say, well, you goofball, I'm a zombie. I'm going to suck your brains out, right? That's what I do because I'm a zombie. Well, if being a pretty good person were the way to knowing God and being with him one day in heaven, then Jesus didn't need to come at all and die that sacrificial, horrific death upon the cross and take our sins upon himself. So we're going to find out what's really going on from God's perspective. We're going to find out for some of you that haven't stepped in yet to this journey with God. You're going to see exactly where, how this works. And for those of you that are in, we're going to even be able to thank God even more for what he's done. Ephesians chapter 2. I wrote the verses down for you. I put a little space in between each verse so you could write some notes if you want to. Verse 1 says this. And you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins. See, God only has one category for all people outside of Christ, dead. Not good people who occasionally mess up, not Hitler bad, you know, just dead. And we're not dead because we commit sin. We don't sin and then die. The Bible teaches really clearly that we're born dead spiritually. I'm not a liar because I lie. I lie in the first place because deep in my heart is this deadness. I'm a liar. A a person doesn't kill and then become a murderer. We kill because we are murderers deep in our heart. The opposite of being in Christ, it says here, is being in trespasses and sins. That's where our heart is deep down. Now, this doesn't imply that all Men and women are as bad as they possibly could be. A lot of people are trying really hard. It simply states that to God, all of us are dead spiritually. There's no spiritual life. And we're floating in an atmosphere of trespass and sin. We're born that way. A mother put her three-year-old in a timeout in the corner. Uh, Her Sunday dress was hanging in that corner. Her coat, her shoes... And she looked over there after a few minutes, and the little boy was going, and she goes, son, what are you doing? And defiantly, he stared at her, and he said, I pit on your shoes, I pit on your dress, I pit on your coat, and I'm just standing here waiting for some more pit, to pit on something else. That's kind of the problem with all the utopian ideals, communism, socialism, why they never work. With John Lennon, I mean, we can imagine all the people living life in peace. But you have to assume then that man is essentially good. What the Bible teaches is the truth. We probably just ran out of pit for the moment, okay? And we're we're just waiting. Trespasses, this word is interesting. You're dead in trespasses. It means to cross a boundary. It means that God put a line in the sand and we go, I'm not even paying attention to that, God. I'm just going to cross it. Every sinful act is a trespass against God. The word sin is interesting. Hamartia is the word in Greek and it's a hunting word and it's the word of an arrow pulled back aimed toward a target but it misses the target to miss the mark but it doesn't just mean to miss the mark it means to miss the mark really badly not even to get there it means to fall short it's like you pulled back and aimed and you didn't even get halfway to the target before your arrow hit the ground and slides in the dirt. That's the word for that. I want you to hear this really clearly this morning because this is the real biblical definition of sin. Sin is a failure to hit God's target. So ultimately, sin is not a question of wrongdoing. It's a question of falling short of something. Well, you say, well, what is God's target? The Bible tells us real clearly in Romans. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a failure to glorify God. Now we all understand a robber is a sinner. A murderer is a sinner. A rapist is a sinner. A liar is a sinner. We're all clued in on that, but hear me this morning. Sin has much more to do with what you don't do than what you do do. Sin's not really an issue of what you do, but of what you fail to do. You fail to measure up to the glory of God. You fail to measure up. Why? Because you're dead. You simply can't 
measure up. It, you fail. Jesus said, if you want to try to get to heaven on your own, if you want to come to know me without me and what I've done on the cross, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And none of us have measured up to that. God made us for his glory and we don't glorify him. Glory, holiness, perfection. That's the target. It's if you imagine being at the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been at the Grand Canyon? Let's see, a few of us. But just imagine this majestic canyon and, and you're standing at the very lip of it. Just imagine right here. This is the lip of the Grand Canyon, okay? And we're all here together. And the other side is way over there and a mile down, right? And I say, here's what we're going to do, guys. We are going, God is over there on the other side of the Grand Canyon and he's just waiting for us. So let's all jump to God. We can do it. We can give our best effort and get there, right? And so here we go. And some of you are going to take a, a run and, and you're going to jump and you're going you're to sail a mile. You're going to go a mile, but it's a mile down, right? And then some of us are barely going to get there. I'm going to jump right off here. You ready to catch me? Let's see. He doesn't look ready. I don't think I'm going to go. Okay. The other thing about that, though, see, maybe Carl Lewis is there, you know, the great Houston sprinter and jumper, and he goes 25, 30, 40 feet out there, but he's still not going to make it. None of us can get there, but it's even worse than that because what the Bible says is we're dead. Imagine that I stand up a corpse right here, and I say, okay, bud, jump as far as you can. Boop. Right? That's what he's saying. It's like we're trying to get to God, but we're dead we can never get there and if you imagine the cross of Christ coming down and bridging that gap that's exactly what happened and we'll talk about that a lot of times we meet good people and we say he's a good guy humanitarian good wonderful father loves his wife loves his kids he's generous uh, you know all of these things and that's wonderful Jesus would say that's wonderful in fact he says in Luke chapter 6 if you do good to those who do good to you, that's, that's good. Sinners do that all the time. Jesus said people who do good to each other are still what? Sinners. Because sinning is not an issue of what you're doing to each other. It's an issue of what we fail to do with God. Because we don't reach that standard. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What kind of people give good gifts to their children, did Jesus say? Evil people. Not, it's not evil to give good gifts to your children. He's just saying that in your heart, you're still evil, even when you do good things. There's a deadness in there. And that's what... He's talking about the Pharisees one time came to Jesus. And they were always trying to trick him and trap him. And th they were the most self-righteous people. I mean, I can't stand to be around self-righteous people who, who, who puff themselves up and they're always judging other people. That's what I love about this church is the acceptance that you feel when you walk in as we're all struggling together, learning and growing together. But they, they, they brought this woman before Jesus. There's a big crowd and they said, this woman was caught in the very act, we just pulled her out of the bed with this married guy. She was caught in the act of adultery. My first question has always been, where was the guy, right? 
but they brought the woman. I don't know where the guy was, okay? And they're going to stone her because, in the, you know, the Jewish law said stone everyone who commits adultery. Imagine if we still did that today. There would be no Hollywood at all, would there? But, you know, it would be just a crazy. I mean, I could be an actor because there's no one there, you know? But, and Jesus, what did he do? They were testing him. He said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. God's standard is not what you think. You're comparing yourself to one another. You're saying, I'm a lot better than this woman. And I'm telling you, God's standard is no sin. If you have no sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he reaches down and writes in the dirt. You know what I think he was writing in the dirt probably was their sins. You know, here they are and they've got their stone and they're ready to go. And he looks down and said, you lusted after so-and-so. You know, walk off. You know, because he could see into their hearts. But here's the thing. After they were all gone, he picked the woman up and he said, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. I don't have sin, but I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. And here's, God loves us. He wants relationship with us. But see, he has a dilemma in a sense because he is so holy. And he is so righteous. And he is so just when you stand in his presence, it'd be like standing three inches from the sun. And if you have any sin in you at all, you're just going to be pulverized to dust. It just, that's just how it is. But he wants you in his presence. So he's in this, th- this dilemma because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And he wants you to live with him forever. That's the thing about Jesus coming to earth. Verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How do you know if you're spiritually alive or dead? What are the evidence... Evidences of being spiritually dead. Well, you walk a certain way. The word walk is indicative that life is a walk, an active process that moves along step by step. And it says, the way you walk, you walk according to the course of this world. You get a course in school, don't you? I'm taking my next course. What is the course this world is teaching us? Well, we get a glimpse into it in the next verses. It says you lived in this. You formerly lived. To live, the Greek word anastrepho, literally means to spend your time, to conduct yourselves within the sphere of something, to live in something. And the tense, it's passive. So we see that it happened to us. We really could do nothing about it. We were just born that way. So we get up, live the day, go to bed, and live what? In the lusts of our flesh. That word lust is so interesting. We always think of sexuality, sexual sin and sexual passion and sexual lust. That's part of it, but it's way beyond that. The word lust, I think, could best be pictured. Imagine an 800-pound parrot saying, Polly wants a cracker now. That would be lust, okay? What it is is basically the desire to, to satisfy Self. It's not just the lust to have sex. It's, it's also the lust to eat. It, it, it's the lust to get our own way. The lust to manipulate and control 
others. You could make a list 10 miles long. It's all of these things, these lusts. We were dominated by that. And we lived for that. And that's how it used to be. But God says that's not how it is now because you're a believer. And he goes in verse 3 to tell us the real problem. He says, really by nature you were children of wrath. That word nature, fusis, it's the word that, that refers to the natural condition of birth. You see, one of the reasons why I know the Garden of Eden was real, you can have all kinds of questions and doubts, and when, when was it and all these. I mean, I'm, I'm one who believes that God said, I'm going to do this in seven days, but those seven days, the, the world wasn't even spinning, so there wasn't night and day. What is seven days to God? It could be billions of years for all I know when God says, he just named a day. This is a day, but he says a day is like a, a, a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He doesn't, he's not in time like that, okay? But somewhere in all of that, there was a Garden of Eden. How do I know? Because of the results of it. War, divorce, hurt, anger, fear, all of the things that we live in today because you remember when Adam and Eve took that fruit whatever it was we always think it's an apple it doesn't say that maybe it was a plum we don't know what it was but when they ate of the tree of good and evil God had already said the day that you eat of it you will die remember they took a big bite we didn't die but they were wrong they did something deep inside of them shriveled and died it was their spirit the spiritual part of them and they continued to live in their body but their spiritual side was dead and they passed that down to every single one of their progeny that's we all got that if you could take a little baby when it's squalling at three in the morning you know, oh my cute little baby if you could give it the vocabulary of a 20 year old it would make your ears burn what do you think it's saying you see it wants its way it wants its milk if she does she better get in here with that you know because I'm hungry the first thing they learn to say almost before mommy and daddy is mine 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 right it's mine you're dealing with a nature and that's why moms and dads it's it's the greatest thing you could do for your children is to bring them to relationship with Jesus because that's what's going to change them that's what's going to make them all that God intended them to be verse 4 but God being rich in mercy I love when it says but and God is right after that it means like there's some bad stuff happening but God this is one of the big buts of the Bible all right and I want you to remember that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved but God I read this week a, a guy shared he said not a lot of good professors out there anymore but he said I'll never forget this one professor that I had in college he said in one of the classes I was in I love that old guy he couldn't see real well but he was an amazing teacher and one day in this particular class it was world religions he said we were talking about the different religions in the world comparative religions and one guy asked what right do we have to go to other countries in the world and to tell them that Christ is our God and should be their God and that we serve the only true God why not let them serve Buddha or Allah or whoever it is they want to serve I mean after all what you call him doesn't matter he said, I'd never seen my professor like this. 
he took off his glasses. And that was dangerous because he couldn't see with them, much less without them. And we saw big tears in his eyes. And he walked around and he steadied himself on the podium. And for the next 30 minutes, there wasn't a dry eye in that place as he started to say, you name me one God who would come down to this earth and die on a garbage heap for the very creation that had already rejected him so soundly. And he went through the religions of the world. He named every one of the gods. And when he finished, there wasn't a dry eye in the class. Even the guy that asked the question was crying. Great love. While we were in our condition, we were yet sinners. We were spiritually dead. We were unlovable. But God, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It's so interesting that made alive together is one Greek word. We can't get it. We, can't, we have to use a bunch of English words. And it, it's aorist indicative, and it means at a point in time, at a certain point in time, he made you alive. He gave you back the spiritual life that your forefathers lost in the garden. What does it mean to be made alive? We see it in verse 5, by grace. You have been saved. The word saved, sozo, delivered out of, rescued. You've been rescued. And that's in the passive voice. We didn't do it. It was done to us, for us. He did it. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's wage, that's, uh, th that's called a wage. When a, when a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's called a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service and high achievements, that's called an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that's called grace. See, some people's reaction to the plan of salvation, that it's God's free gift, it is, it's, that just seems too simple. It seems like there's something I must do. We're so caught up in this performance-based world of America. Everything's, you might have grown up in a performance-based household where you had to perform, 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 and then you would be loved, and you think God's like that. No, you can't do that. You're, he says you're dead. You can't do that. I read this week about Harry Houdini, the, the amazing magician that lived you know, all those years ago. And he made, uh, uh, he, he, he said, I can get out of any jail cell in any town, anywhere, within about an hour. You can lock me in and I'll be out. And he did that over and over. They locked him into the, the, the most difficult cells and he got out every time, except in this one small town. He went into the jail, they shut the heavy iron bars behind him, and he was in street clothes and he pulled out of his belt this hidden little thing that was kind of a, a thing that he could pick the lock with. And that's what he had always, and so he started working and he started trying to pick the lock 30 minutes and he still hadn't heard that familiar click, you know, that he had picked the lock and he started to sweat. An hour passed, an hour and a half, two hours and he finally just gave up and he said, I can't get out of this one and he fell against the bars and the gate swung open because it wasn't locked. That's how a lot of us are with salvation. We're still trying to pick the lock. We're still trying to say, if only I can do enough, if I can just do this for God, if I can just, you know, finagle, if I can just, if I can just, if my good can just outweigh my bad, and God's going, I've, Jesus has already opened the, I opened it. It's open. All you have to do is push into me. 
It's open for you already. Still trying to pick the lock. Why would he do all this? This is the crazy thing. In verse 6 he says, And he not only did this, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He rescued us so that forever he could show us love and kindness. Is that amazing? You say, well, I don't deserve that. I know, neither do I. That's because of who he is, not who we are. I heard just yesterday the story of a, a little orphan girl in Korea. It was right after the war, and she was the daughter of one of our servicemen and a Korean lady, and there was a lot of prejudice against them after, after the U.S. left, after the Korean War. And she, uh, she was four years old. Her mom met another man because the servicemen had left and, and, and didn't hang around. And he said, I love you, woman, but I don't want that girl. So she sent her four-year-old on a train by herself to meet her uncle in another big city, and no one met the train. So this four-year-old girl, four-year-old girl, wandered the street for three years. She was at seven years old, weighed 20-something pounds, laying on the side of the road about to die when a woman who was starting an orphanage walked by, saw her, and said, well, I'm starting an orphanage for babies. This is tragic, but she's... Not the, and, and she said, I just, but I couldn't walk by. So she scooped her up and took her to the orphanage. At nine, she's been in the orphanage two years, she still has open sores on her face because it, she just, it was horrific all that she went through in those few short years. And a couple came from the States to adopt one of the babies and they saw her over in the corner with these sores on her face and the man came over and he put his hand on her face and he tilted her head up to look in his eyes and the little girl said that she felt something she'd never felt before. She felt like love just like beaming out of that guy. Like this is the purest love. And she said, I didn't know how to deal with it, so I spit in his face. And I ran away. But they came back the next day. And they said, we don't want one of the babies. We want her. She's a pastor's wife in Oregon today. And God changed her life through this believing couple that adopted her. Did she deserve it? No, she had spit in his face. She didn't even know how to respond. This is what God has done for us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you breathe spiritually, it's because God slapped you on the back. If you can hear the hearing of faith, it's because God unstopped your ears. No self-congratulation, no human achievement, it's all God. Salvation didn't come at your confirmation. Salvation didn't come at your baptism because of your church attendance, because of your church membership. It didn't come by giving money in the offering basket when it's passed. It doesn't come when you take communion or keep the Ten Commandments or live by the Sermon on the Mount or give to charity, or be a good neighbor, or do good to your fellow man, and live a respectable life. In fact, Jesus said hell will be loaded with people who did all of those things. Salvation is God's doing. We simply receive it. How? By bowing the knee to his lordship. 
by coming before him and saying, I bow before you, I ask you, I receive what you did for me on the cross. I don't understand it all. I want to make you Lord. You make him Lord of your life. Boss. But here's what's so amazing about that. Those of you who are here that are believers, the result of bowing the knee and making him and receiving this amazing rescue, this amazing gift, the result is good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I remember reading that in John 14, 15, and I thought, you know what? That, that what he's saying is, you know, show that you love me by keeping my, that's an American way of reading it. Show that you love me by keeping my commandments. That's not what he said. He said, when you truly, really fall head over heels in love with me, when you love me with all that you are, you'll keep my commandments. That's just natural. It's what happens. It's because there's new life inside of you. Elvis Presley, he still sells more records all these years after his death than most artists do when they're alive. But in spite of his enormous success, Elvis, according to close friends, was unfulfilled, unhappy. He died of obesity and drug dependence at age 42. I read an interview that was given a long time ago by his wife Priscilla. I read it this week and she said this. Elvis never came to terms with who he was meant to be or what his purpose in life was. He thought he was here for a reason, maybe to preach. I almost fell out. Maybe to serve. Maybe to save. Maybe to care for people. The agonizing desire that was always with him. And he knew he wasn't fulfilling it. So he'd go on stage and he wouldn't have to think about it. He did a lot of things. So he wouldn't have to think about it. Elvis, in that sense, he was lost. You know, people do need a better education, but that's not going to change us. Better psychoanalysis. I believe in counseling. That's not going to do it. There's only one thing a dead person needs, and that is life. It demands resurrection. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what our society needs. We need life. Jesus said it this way. I have come that you might have life. He also said this, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, I am life. And when you bow the knee before him, you can't help but join him in his great task of rescue. 